the Gospel of Luke. We will be here for a while, so let's get comfy. Um, if you guys don't have a Bible, uh, if you take a look in front of you, why don't you snap one of those white ones in front of you? That's our gift to you as the branch. Like We want you guys to be able to see this with your own eyes. We want you to know that it's not just coming from Gabe, it's not coming from me. This is God's Word itself. Uh, as we're taking a step-by-step, verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Luke, uh, we want you to be able to see the truths that are in the Gospel of Luke. So if we remember all the way back to a couple of weeks ago, uh, we learned that the book of Luke was written for discipleship purposes. It was written for a guy named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, he was, Luke calls him the most excellent Theophilus. Uh, he calls him that. He wants him to know, I want you to have assurance of the truths that you know. So the story of Jesus that Luke, he himself, is more than a physician. He is an evangelist, he's a missionary, but he's also a researcher. So he takes painstaking efforts to compile first-hand account witnesses, testimonies of the story of Jesus, so that Theophilus can have assurance. So that's why we're walking through this as the branch as well, so that way we can see from the gospel itself, so we can have assurance and confidence of who Jesus is as well. So we've entitled the sermon series, A Meal with Jesus. So if you guys have been with us for the past couple of weeks, you're probably wondering where does a meal with Jesus take place? So I'm glad you guys are here tonight because there's no meal with Jesus tonight either. Um, so that will come in the next couple of weeks. But what we get to see tonight is for the first time in the Gospel of Luke, a more intimate story of Jesus. So if you guys remember uh, last week, if you guys were here, Gabe finished up for us where there, Jesus was going and he was getting baptized by John the baptizer for the repentance of sins. Um, so he finished there, Jesus baptized, he's coming into the Spirit and into the wilderness, this is where we pick up. So if you're there with me, we're going to start picking up in verse 1 of chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. For forty days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when the day had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on by bread alone. And he led him up, him being Christ, and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Verse 6, And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. You guys pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Luke, for wanting to compile this first-hand, first-hand account for Theophilus. Thank you for sharing um, your word with us, that we can even come in today and understand who you are because of this. I ask that you would help us remove everything, uh, remove all these lenses of what we need to do tonight, and just rest into who you are. Jesus, I ask that your spirit would come, that your purposes would be accomplished for the word that which you've sent. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I have a confession, right? I, um, <laughs> I have trust issues. Show of hands, anybody else with trust issues? Oh, man, a lot more than I thought. I was like, it's going to be lonely out here. So there's about a fourth of us or so that have trust issues. That's good for me as, like, as a pastor to know at the branch. So like a fourth of us have trust issues, and then about three-fourths of us have trust issues and denial issues, too. So um, it's okay. It's good for me to know, right? Like, we all have trust issues. Like, I, it's not going to be hard for me to prove to you. Let, let me show you. So I started at a really young age having trust issues, right? So this is going to be great therapy. I started with my parents. Um, they're actually in the room tonight, so this would be great like family therapy time. You guys grab some popcorn. Um, this should be interesting. Um, so let me tell you, like, you guys tracking with me here when I say like trust issues with their parents? Like, your parents would tell you lies, like, purposely. You know, these for good things, but they would purposely tell you lies. Like, you're thinking back on it, and you're like, hey, that wasn't true. Like, I remember the first time I actually realized that my mom used to tell me all the time, Kyle, if you want to be big and strong, you have to eat your veggies. That's bull crap. Like, I ate my veggies, except for bananas. I don't know if that, that's not a veggie, so I don't know if that counts or not. No, that doesn't count. But that's crap. I ate it then, and I eat it now, and you, no one would call me big and strong. I'm just saying. So that was a lot that my parents told me for a good reason, right? Um, another one, this one, this one I, I know that we have trust issues from a young age. So I work at Restoration Hardware, which is really nice furniture place with overpriced furniture. Um, so I see these parents come in with their kids, right? So they're coming in, these kids, like, the parents aren't taking care of the kids at all. It's like free-range chickens. They're, like, everywhere. They're like, I see a kid, I kid you not, like, I'm not exaggerating to the least. I see a kid come in, swan dive, and belly flop on a $10,000 sofa, and I lose my mind. I'm like, a part of me dies inside. But the parents, they lie to the kids. Instead of being like a parent and saying, hey, we don't do that, that's not our furniture, like, they lie to them and manipulate them. It's creepy. Like, they, they get the kids and they point outside. You see that police officer outside? You see that law of security? He's coming to arrest you right now. He's coming to arrest you. You're not going to get to play with your toys. You're not going to have ice cream sandwiches. And the kid starts bawling. And I'm like, we, like, it, it, trust issues. It starts at a very young age, I know. Uh, it's a good confession time for me. It's really good. Um, another favorite one that's a childhood memory. So I'm pick up my dad a little bit. This one I'm totally doing when Jen and I have kids. This is fantastic. So I was the kid that liked to fidget with everything in the car, right? So, like, I'm sitting in the front seat, and there's, like, um, windshield wipers. There's a radio, like, turning up all the knobs, all the, the, with the flashers, what is it, the hazard lights. So my dad, I guess he watched too much, like, James Bond. Um, he told me, son, I'm not going to tell you which one. But one of these is a seat ejector. And if you push that button, when we're going down the road, you're going to fly out of the car. I was like, oh, my God. Just gonna sit right little five-year-old me. So trust issues. It's deep-rooted. So we laugh. And, like, it's, it's funny. But, like, I mean, we're not immune from it in this room, right? So, guys, um, this would be fun a little bit. Uh, let's see how we can handle this. Uh, this would be pretty good. If you've been married for at least five minutes or you dated or you know anyone, you get a text message from some girl you work with. You get some text message from uh, some girl you have a class with, and and your wife or, or your girlfriend or bae is like, hey, who's that? And you're like, oh, it's this just some girl from work. She's asking, you know, about a work schedule, or it's someone, you know, that I have class with. She's asking about homework, and the first thing she does, she must be working and find another man. <laughs> like, I'm serious. Like, guys, we're laughing, but like, it's serious. We have these trust issues. Like, we're not immune to this either, guys. I, I, we're laughing. We can pick on ladies a little bit, but. I don't think we're immune to this either, right? So uh, let's see. Here's a fun one. Um, if you're a guy and you're texting a girl, which we always say the stupid, like, hey, what's up? Like, we don't have anything better to say, but then you get that, like, message read little sign, but she doesn't respond. 
Like, nothing wells up more insecurity and mistrust in a guy than, like, when you read a text message. None of us are thinking, like, oh, yeah, she's probably just sitting in traffic, or she's probably reading her Bible. No, we're thinking, like, she just read my message. She ain't responding. Like, we have trust issues. Um, and it's deep-rooted. But if we're not careful, uh, we can laugh about this and how we don't trust other people. But I think if we're not careful, we miss this subtle underlying truth that I think it's more systemic than that. I think it's more than the fact that we don't trust other people, but I think it's more that we trust ourselves more than we trust other people. So um, how many psych majors are there? Any psych majors? One, two, three, four. Okay, a couple psych majors. So this might sound a little bit familiar. Uh, so psych majors call this the moralization gap. So we tend to overestimate our own good intentions and underestimate other people's intentions. Essentially, we think we have it all figured out that we're good and other people are not good. So a guy named Malcolm Manson, he's a renowned psychiatrist, he's a personal coach, a personal training coach. What he talked about is this idea that there is, um, he set up this big test. So imagine that you're sitting at a red light, right? So you're sitting there, your light's red, you see the light on the other side, it's about to turn green, and a car flies through the intersection. The first things that come to our mind is that person's reckless, that person doesn't care about anybody but themselves. That person is selfish. But we lose sight. Like, if, the, if it was flipped, the script was flipped, and we were on the other side of that, if we were flying through the light, we tend to make more excuses for ourselves. We tend to have a little bit more grace for ourselves, right? We would say things like, oh, mate, the sun was in my eye. I couldn't see it. Or there was a car tailgating me. I didn't want to slam on my brakes so I didn't get, so get rear-ended. Is this tracking that he gets? Like, we tend to see that we mistrust other people and we have more faith in ourselves than we have in other people. So I could do a really cheesy visual. I could have Caleb stand up right here. You don't, don't have to stand up. But if I did the cheesy like trust fall test, you guys know what I'm talking about? Like they do this in like corporate or team building scenarios where I would stand here and tell Caleb to fall backwards and I would catch him. Like the whole reason that thing even exists is because people don't trust each other. Like that would not be a thing if people naturally trusted each other. So what I start to see is that this horizontal relationships that we have with people, like we mistrust people for a good reason sometimes, right? People have hurt us. People have let us down. People have lied to us. But if we're not careful, we let that horizontal relationship, mistrust of others, seep into our vertical relationship with the Lord. We tend to start mistrusting God. So it would be an easy question for me to ask you guys, do you trust yourself more than you trust other people? If we were to be honest, some of the people we said we have trust issues, we would say yes. But if we were really honest with ourselves, all of us would say, yeah, absolutely, I trust myself more than I trust other people. But I think the real question we need to be asking this evening is, do I trust myself more than I trust God? I don't think any of us would tangibly say yes to that question, but practically we live that way every single day. Every single day we trust ourselves more than we trust God. It, there's a, a couple of quotes out there. I think one's by Matt Chandler that says, the ultimate sin is the begotting of God. We would never say that we want to be God, but we tangibly live in a way every, every single day that we make decisions for ourselves because we trust ourselves more than we trust God. So what does this have to do with Jesus here in the temptation? So in Luke 4, my hope is that tonight that we're able to see through this text how Jesus, even though he could have trusted in himself, in these situations of temptation, because he is fully man and fully God, he chose to trust the Father rather than trusting himself. 
So in specifically in this area of temptation, how do we overcome? Right? So let me ask you this question up front. If I still don't have you sold that you, you trust yourself more than you trust other people, let me just ask you that question. If you're trusting in yourself more than other people or even more than God, how is that going for you? How, how, how are you doing with temptation? How are you doing with sin? How are you doing with that secret sin? Are we, are we trying to white-knuckle it? And what I can speak into this week, of course, as I'm studying about temptation, of course, there's a ton of temptation this week. And what I can tell you is every time I try to white-knuckle and trust in myself is when I fall short. So the prayer is tonight that we get to see through God's Word how Jesus did it, and He is our example, and how we follow after Him. So um, let's dig into Scripture here a little bit. We're going to pick up in verse 1. We're going to read a little bit and talk, uh, read a little bit more than talk, and just try to tease this idea apart. Obviously, why Jesus did this, but more practically, how we can avoid temptation as well. So picking up in verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. That'll be the first reference we see to the Holy Spirit in this first verse. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around, again, second reference here, by the Spirit in the wilderness. Anytime, I, I love, anytime we talk about going out in the power of the Spirit, Ricky always, anytime in staff meeting, anytime it comes up, he always talks about anytime someone was filled with the Spirit, they would immediately go and do great things. In Scripture, all throughout Scripture, you see that, except for here. But if you notice, there's two references to the Spirit. He is being led by the Spirit. So immediately, as soon as he is baptized and receives the Spirit, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness, not directly into his ministry, which we'll get into next week. So why is that? I think we start to see some interesting parallels start cropping up here. So the idea of going into the wilderness, oftentimes the wilderness is a place of despair. It's a place where our souls are at unrest. It's a place where there's little food, little sustenance. All throughout Scripture as well, it's a place where demonic activity would occur. So Jesus is going here. Let's read a little bit more. We get a little bit more context here. So picking up verse 2, For 40 days being tempted by the devil... And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. So we see that Jesus is not only in the wilderness, he's in the wilderness for 40 days. So you ask, why is that significant? Why is that significant? We start to see those parallels again crop up in the wilderness. When Jesus is going in the wilderness for 40 days, the Israelites, all the way back in the Old Testament, spent 40 years in the wilderness. So we almost begin to see how Jesus is that coming Messiah, and he's taking everything that was old and making it new again. We see that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Moses, when he was receiving the covenant from God, spent 40 days on the mountaintop. We start to see that these parallels start creeping up. We'll see how Jesus is the better leader. He, he is the better Moses for the Israelites. He is the, there's, we'll start to see a little bit more parallelism between Adam and all the way back in Genesis and how there's the first Adam and how Jesus is the last Adam, how he is much better. So, Let's dig a little bit more in, and we start to see some of these parallelisms crop up. We'll start to see how the temptations of Jesus start to, to intermingle in between here. We'll see that Jesus even starts quoting from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. So picking up a verse 3. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, so stop there. I think of probably a better translation of that is, Since you are the Son of God, right? The enemy knows who he is. He has no doubt that he is the Son of God. More so what he's saying, so we can understand this in a better light, he's saying, since you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. He's saying, tell this stone to become bread. So if we're 
if we're just looking at this from the outside, it seems pretty innocent, doesn't it? Right? Like, what's, what's the big deal about making bread? We can think, oh, well, you know, maybe it's sinful because he's supposed to be fasting. But I think it's deeper rooted than this. Like we talked about, in this text, Satan is more than just trying to get Jesus to not trust God. He is trying to get him to trust in himself more than trusting in God. Right? So we can see here when he's saying, tell the stone to become bread. A lot of people would think that that's a good thing, like he can feed himself. Other translations in the other Gospels would say stones into bread. So a lot of people would think, oh, there's multiple food. He's making more food. He can be, you know, like social justice. He can feed more of the hungry. But it's very personal for Christ here. So I think to give us a little bit more context, it's best to read Jesus' response to the temptation. So verse 4, And Jesus answered him, It is written. So this, it is written, is a reference back to the Old Testament. It's a reference back to Deuteronomy 8.3, where Moses even received the covenant on the mountaintop. So we can even see these parallelisms start to bleed in. He's saying, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And the Old Testament goes on to say, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what Jesus is saying here is, I trust in the Father. I'm not trusting in myself. I have the power to turn this stone into food, but I'm trusting the Father for that provision. Just as the Israelites trusted the Father for provision in the wilderness for daily manna, Jesus is saying, I am trusting in the Father for my provision here in my wilderness. He is saying that, I'd rather go hungry and be obedient than be filled and be disobedient. He's saying, I trust in the Father's provision. So if you guys have something to write with, there's going to be really three main points we're going to try to pull out of here where we can understand better how Jesus overcame temptation so we can better overcome temptation. So the first one right there, how Jesus trusted in God rather than he trusted in himself, is by, number one, he trusted in the Father's provision. He trusted in the Father's provision. So I'm going to do a really cheesy pastory thing. We're going to have the, the three little points that we're going to pull out here, and they're all going to start with the letter P, and we're going to go home and maybe we'll, we'll remember it, right? Um, but it's interesting how he's saying, I'm going to trust him in the wilderness, just like Elijah trusted the Father in the wilderness that the ravens would bring him food, that there would be water for him to have. So what does this mean for us, right? So in this room, as, as college students, as, as parents, are there times where we aren't trusting for the Father's provision? Right? Are we trusting more in ourselves than for the Father's provision? Would we rather say, okay, God, I've got this. I can handle this. Maybe it's for your school. Maybe it's for grades. Maybe it's for a job. Maybe it's for a relationship. Maybe it's for protection for your family, provision for your family. And we would rather trust in ourselves and white-knuckle it and miss out on the blessings the Father has for us. It's almost like we say, God, look, look, I've done this. I've got this together. Look what I've done. Aren't you proud of me? And he looks at us with a broken heart and says, I had so much better for you if you would have trusted my provision. But oftentimes in our own wilderness, we tend to trust in ourselves rather than trust God. So let's keep going. We're going to see, uh, so the first area that Jesus trusted the Father rather than trusting himself was provision. We'll see the second temptation where he trusted the Father. So picking up at verse 5. And he led him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain in its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. So, seems pretty obvious, the temptation there, right? 
if you worship me, Satan saying, if you worship me, you get these things. Absolutely, yeah, that's definitely a temptation there. So, but it's difficult sometimes because it could be like, Jesus can make the argument there at a, at a point that it's a good thing maybe to, for Jesus to come and set up his kingdom, right? Like, how many of us would trade whatever we're going to do in the election in a couple of days for the kingdom of God? Like, that would be a great thing. But it's a little bit more subtle than that. It's more than just Jesus trying to set up a kingdom. Again, I think we get more clarity in his answer from Scripture. So verse 8 there. Jesus answered him, It is written, and this time he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13. He says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus, he makes this correlation between worship and serve. So Jesus knows that who we worship what we worship, we will also serve. What we worship, we will also serve. So Jesus is saying to him, I, I get it, like if I worship you, I will also serve you, Satan. And the fact that I will serve you, it might be glory now, but it's going to be despair later. Oftentimes we, we, we lose sight of this, that we, we translate this in a bunch of different ways, but I think the, the most clear picture of this you guys can stay there. I'll flip back to Psalms 278, um, 27 and 8, and it makes it really clear, I think, why Jesus is trusting the Father rather than trusting himself. So it would be a really great thing. That the enemy has this dominion here. He has a bit of authority here to be able to, he's the prince of the power of the air. He is the lion that's walking back and forth on the, on the earth to see who he can to destroy. But he's saying, I will give you all these kingdoms if you serve me. But the interesting part is here all the way back in the Old Testament. So it's picking up in verse 7 of Psalms 2. It says, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. He's speaking of the Messiah here. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So that's the promise that God is making to the Messiah, Jesus, all the way back in the Old Testament. So, do you guys see that? Let's make that connection here. So the enemy is offering something to Jesus, which he has already been promised by the Father. So why, why the enemy is trying to get him to trust in himself? If the first thing was provision from the Father, the second thing is the promises of the Father. So Jesus is trusting in the promises of the Father rather than himself. He's saying, Jesus said, if you do it my way, if you take the difficult route, if you're willing to sacrifice a little on the front end, you still get these kingdoms. This is a promise that the Father is making to the Messiah, that one day his kingdom will be set up here on earth. That he doesn't have to sacrifice and serve the enemy and have his kingdom set up now, and later it ends in misery and ruin for all of us. He's saying if you just wait a little bit, if you wait a little bit. Do we do that too? Do we not trust the promises of the Father? There's... God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. He has promises he's made to the children of Israel that he has kept and that he will keep. He has promises he's made to us as the Gentiles grafted into the root of Jesse that he has kept and that he will keep. And he has promises he has made to you specifically that he has kept and he will keep. If you call them to mind, don't run out ahead of them. Trust them. Because the way of temptation always looks great up front, doesn't it? 
always looks great up front, but at the end it leads to death. Proverbs 16, 23 says, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end leads to death. Don't run out in front of them. Trust them. Especially with this temptation. Whatever you have going on in your life, whether it's school, whether it's a relationship you're not sure of, whether it's illness, whether whatever it is, whatever the promise he's made to you, I will get you through school. I promise. Like You might not believe him right now, but he will get you through school. Like It will happen. Trust him. So let's keep moving forward. We'll see a little bit more of these correlations, this last temptation of Jesus. We'll see how he trusted the Father. Verse 9. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself. It's interesting to notice that yourself. The enemy will tempt us, but we are the ones who commit the sin. We're the ones who do it. Throw yourself down from here, for it is written. So the enemy is about to quote scripture here. And this is sometimes where the enemy sucks. This is probably the best way to say it. Like It gets a little squirrely that this is when we tend to try to, try to find a level footing that he will take little bits of truth and dabble in little bits of lie, and it's hard to tell the difference. This is why Gabe talked a little bit about this last week, the idea of hermeneutics, the idea of using Scripture to interpret Scripture so you get a better reading of Scripture. It's so, so important, and we see Jesus does that here. So what the enemy is actually quoting from is Psalm 91.11. He's saying, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands... They will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against stone. So he is tempting Jesus to take a gamble with his life, to jump off the top of the pinnacle of the building. So how is this, yeah, temptation? I think probably the best way to see how God is working in the situation is specifically Jesus, how Jesus is trusting the Father rather than trusting himself, is he is trusting the Father's protection. You could probably use the word provision. So the first way that Jesus trusts God rather than trusting himself is through his, well, the second one is his promises. First is that his, I'm sorry, guys, um, his provision. And the third is his promises. I told you this, the three Ps. I'm even stumbling over. We might remember these. We might get there. But the last bit of that, like, it didn't make quite sense to me. Like, God is saying that he, in this promise in the Old Testament that he will protect the Messiah, so What's the big harm in, you know, jumping off and just proving him right, you know? Um, but the, the idea there is almost like instead of humbly submitting to the Father's love, it's almost putting him to test. It would be like if you had someone that said they loved you, but you're constantly going behind their back to try to find a way to see if they really mean it. You're putting them to test that you would create a, I, literally I had this happen, I had a girl create a fake MySpace, I'm dating myself at the time, MySpace page and start flirting with me to see if I really liked her. Like, that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of mistrust that we're talking about, that we'd rather trust in ourselves rather than trusting in other people. Jesus, he's tempted to trust in himself that he can make the Father hold up his promises rather than just humbly submitting and saying, I trust you. I know you love me. I know you love me. And last part here um, in verse 13 says, when the devil finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. He left him until an opportune time. So we see that Jesus passed the test or won the battle 
But temptation in our spiritual walk is more than just a battle, it's a war, isn't it? Oftentimes we might win one, two, three. Even Jesus had continual battle with the enemy. So it's so hard for us, and I don't want us to miss this fact, but we're talking about these parallelisms about how Jesus is the better or the last Adam. So it gives it a little bit of clarity here as to why a lot of scholars would say that. First uh, John 2.16 talks about sin. talks about sin is namely three things. So this might help us a little bit practically to understand what sin is. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. If we could boil sin down, it typically comes down to those three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So you can see, even in this parallelism, how Jesus is the better Adam. There's the lust of the flesh. So the apple for Adam looked really good to eat. The stone for bread looked really good for Jesus to eat. The second, the pride of life is Jesus taking his life into his own hands, willing to throw himself off. That's a temptation of pride of life. The apple was good to make them like God. And the last one is the pride of the eyes. So pride of the eyes that Jesus was taken up and promised all these kingdoms. You can have this. This can be yours. And the same thing for Adam. The apple looked good to eat. So where every place where Adam fell, Jesus succeeded for us. Every place. So instead of entrusting in himself, he is the son of God. Even the enemy is saying, since you are the son of God, he could have trusted in himself, but he trusted in the Father. Listen, guys, no one lies to you like you do. We say that we trust ourselves, but no one lies to you like you do. If you don't have that accountability built in, if you're not plugged into a missional community, if you're not plugged into a DNA, when people can call out things in you, you're lying to yourself. We all fall short. We are trusting in ourselves, and we tend to white-knuckle it, and we white-knuckle it, and we white-knuckle it, and think we've got it together, and think we can defeat sin. But I see the looks on your faces. I know the echoing in my heart that we are not doing it. The, beautiful, the most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me is being plugged into a body here where I have guys around me that call it out on me because I know I can't defeat sin on my own. I know I can't defeat temptation on my own, that I have to trust in the Father. Let's bring this all in, right? Let's bring this all in. What really kind of, kind of wrecked me this week when I'm reading and doing the study came across Romans 14, 23. And it says this, if everything we do is not birthed out of faith in Christ, it is sin. How much is everything? Everything? If everything we don't, if everything we do is not birthed out of faith in Christ, it is sin. So that's even our own feeble attempts to try to defeat sin. So that we see why it's important to trust God, right? Rather than trust ourselves. Jesus showed us that, but how do we take this out of the pages? How do we put it, boots on the ground, for you guys? What does this mean for you? So we know why we need to trust Jesus, but how do we tangibly, physically, practically do that? So if you got something to write with, there's a few little points that I want us to jot down that will help us, hopefully, through this. At this point, I know if you guys are anything like me, you want five fail-proof steps of how to defeat temptation and sin. Got nothing. Like, it does not work that way. It's all about how we trust Christ first and the Father. I hope we see that from Jesus. But you got something to write down. 
I would ask this question when you're being tempted or when sin comes about to identify sin is, is what I'm about to do bring myself glory or God glory? Are the actions that I'm about to take bring God glory or myself glory? If you can't definitively say it's going to bring God glory, you might be telling a line there. Is what I'm about to do bring God glory or myself glory? Another one, we talked about this a little bit, is this action I'm about to take, does it seem really easy? Does the, the benefits are right up front? Does it start really good? But if you take your time and look beyond that, maybe one, two, three steps in the future, do you see turmoil? Do you see a wall coming that you're going to run into? Is it a way that seems good to man, but in the end leads to death? It's Proverbs 16, 23. So those are really two really tangible questions we can ask, three little bit more, um, that we can kind of do a self-assessment or maybe have someone do an assessment of ourselves. Because some, sometimes, I know me, I have spiritual blinders. Um, last little part is, are we making excuses? Are we making excuses? Are you not owning up to not trusting? If someone were to ask you, what do you have going on in your life as far as sin, and you say, oh, I've got it under control, like, it's not that really big of a deal, it's just something every once in a while, struggling, making excuses. This one, along the same lines there, um, are you rationalizing? Are you saying that this is okay? Like, oh, sure, this person's doing it, so surely I can do it. Surely I can do it. Might not, are you not trusting the Father in those moments? Are you not saying, God, what do you think about these decisions? Last big one there, are you distracting yourself? Some of you guys might know what I'm talking about a little bit here. Are, are, are you trying to do something to take your mind off the fact of what is really just in the back of your mind a lot of times, that temptation, that struggle, that sin that you're dealing with, do you find ways to take it off your mind? Are you coping the thing about coping is you're trying to dull your senses to that, that pressing of the Holy Spirit, but you can't selectively dull. You can't just dull that pain or that guilt that's trying to lead you towards repentance. You can't just selectively dull that. You also dull the joy and the freedom that comes in being a son and daughter of a king. You can't just dull one and not dull the other. So as this all kind of settles on us tonight, we see that we, we need to trust the Father. We can't do this on our own. All of our own merit will not measure up. It's not going to be easy. I'm not saying that at, at, by any means. It is going to be difficult. There will be battle after battle after battle. But remember that glory follows suffering. Glory follows suffering. Right? The king had to hang on a tree before he could sit on the throne. The king had to die on a cross before he could don his crown. This would not be easy, but it is totally worth it. It is up to him. But we can celebrate that tonight, and the fact that he has overcome for us, the fact that he came and died for us, we get to celebrate that as we remember what he has done for us through communion.
Maybe tonight that this will give it a little bit more meaning of when we understand that the body was broken for us and that the blood was poured out for us, that, that bread that's broken, that juice that we dip in, has a little bit more of a meaning. Because we understand at this point there is no hope for us to try to save ourselves. There is no hope for us to try to overcome even temptation by ourselves. How can we be sinless if we can't even overcome temptation by ourselves? So as we respond this evening, I ask that you give some thought as to those areas where you're not trusting in God's provision, where you're not trusting in his promises, and you're not trusting ultimately in his protection for you or his faithfulness. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, we're grateful for uh, a little bit of a, of a heavier truth that we don't measure up because there is so much joy in that, that you do, that you measure up much more than we ever could. Jesus, would you take away this false narrative that we have, that we have to save ourselves, that we have to be good enough, that we have to overcome by ourselves? Would your promise of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 stick in our heart, that we would trust you with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding and all our ways acknowledge you and you will direct our paths. Would, I, would we be able to trust you, Hebrews 12, 2, that we would fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we wouldn't try to do this ourselves, we would fix our eyes on you so that we will not grow weary, because we are weary. We are tired of trying to do this on our own. You never asked us to. It's just this silly little idea that we think we have to do it on our own. But the enemy will even throw in bits of truth into a big old lie to get us to doubt your goodness, to make us think we have to earn this. But it's ultimately not already finished. So Jesus, we're grateful that you love us. We're grateful that you came and you did not take the easy way. You did not choose glory first. You chose suffering for us to purchase for yourself many sons and daughters. So as we take this communion tonight, would we remember that? It's in your name we pray. Amen.